0: Um, We've been doing a series through the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we've we've gone through the first seven chapters, and so what I'm going to be sharing today is from 1 Corinthians 7 from verse 29 to 35, and I've entitled this section, Living for God, and I thought it's a really interesting little passage in the middle of all that we've been looking at so far. So, in order to really fully understand today's passage, I thought it would be really good to have a brief reminder of the historical context of this letter in terms of Paul's missionary journeys as they're recorded in the book of Acts, and also some of the issues that Paul was addressing in the church in Corinth. Now, uh, the Apostle Paul, was pro- he probably arrived in Corinth uh, about 8 to 12 months after he started his journey, his second missionary journey, where he left from Antioch in Syria, and he made his way all the way through modern-day Turkey, all the way through Greece, past Athens, and over the little bay, and then he arrived in Corinth. And so he traveled 1500 miles, pretty impressive, and he had a really important message to bring. And so we we understand he arrived in Corinth about 51 AD just to give us a bit of a timeline. Now, as we've been teaching up until now, Corinth was a very busy port city just west of Athens in the province of Achaea, and like many port cities today, if you think in your own mind, it was a a melting pot of people from different places where there was new intellectual ideas that were shared, new religious practices were given lots of latitude amongst pagan thinkers and Jewish people alike, and it was a hotbed, excuse the pun, for prostitution and sexual cults, and perhaps this was like the London, New York, Amsterdam, Bangkok, of our day. And um, Paul's practice when he went on these missionary journeys, what he used to do, because he was an artisan himself, he was a tent maker, he would go and find the trade guilds in whichever city he went to. And he would befriend and find work because you couldn't just go and work. You had to be part of a trade guild. So he would go and find work with these different trade guilds and people who were in a similar craft to him, and he would build relationship. That's how he evangelized. He built friendship and made connections, and that's the same as what we do as well. And so in this situation, when he got to Corinth, he would have met a couple called Aquila and his wife Priscilla, and they were also fellow tent makers. But what was also interesting about them was that they were also Christians. And After getting to know each other, they invited Paul to come and stay in their home in Corinth. The other thing that Paul would have done, which would have been his usual habit, is the first place he would go to preach or to try and root himself in in a town or community was he would go to the local synagogue. And he would begin to teach them from the Jewish scriptures about the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that they had been waiting for. And Paul found that the response uh, from the Jewish community in Corinth, he found them very resistant and even quite hostile to this message that he was bringing. And however, we we read that um, it says in Acts 18, verse 7, he said that Paul, after a time of preaching, he left the synagogue. And went to the home of Titus, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Titus was a Gentile converted to Judaism, and he and his families had started attending the synagogue and decided to convert to becoming Jewish. But when Paul began to preach, they all decided to believe in Jesus. And we also read that the leader of the synagogue, whose name was Crispus, he got saved as well. So you can see this little thing that's happening with Paul in the city of Corinth. So, with all these new friends that he had made <clears throat> who had become Christians and had opened their hearts to the gospel, Paul planted a new church in Corinth. And we read in Acts 18, verse 11, that Paul stayed in Corinth for about a year and a half until the summer or the fall of A.D. 53. Now, as this new church began to grow, it certainly began to reflect the demographics of Corinth. Uh, There were Jewish converts, Greeks with pagan roots, as well as intellectuals and philosophers, and then people from all the, the Roman provinces. And each of these new converts... They brought into the church the ideas and the cultural practices they had always, always lived with in the Greco-Roman Corinthian culture. So imagine someone comes and tells you a new idea, a new belief, but all you've ever known is your world and your culture and how you've grown up. So how do you know how to behave in this new faith, this new thing that's developing? Now after 18 months of establishing this fledgling church, Paul had to return to Jerusalem and then he was going to plan to come and visit later. But it was on his third missionary journey, when he was in the, in the city of Ephesus, that Paul actually received some very troubling news about his converts in Corinth. Corinth. And he realized that from what was said, that they were struggling with some moral issues. So Paul did the best that he could. He was far away. And what he did was he wrote a a letter to this church to help them and encourage them. And we learn about this letter in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9 because actually that letter has been lost. We don't have that letter And it says there, I wrote to you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So Paul tries to do this. He tries to write a letter to encourage this church that is struggling. But it seems that these new believers were very confused by Paul's letter to keep away from uh, sexually immoral people. Since then, they would have had to lock themselves away in their houses and never venture out because that was really the whole culture of Corinth. Then some travelers went from Corinth, and they arrived in Ephesus, and they met with Paul face to face, and they brought him a letter in reply to this first letter that we we know about. And although Corinth was Paul's best church, it was also his most troublesome church. The new converts had received the gospel with great joy and enthusiasm, but now that we're finding it really, really hard to navigate how to be a Christian in a pagan culture. And we must remember, we've, we're very blessed if we go and plant a church. We've got the New Testament. We've got all Paul's letters. We can go back and say, how do you deal with the situation? We've got a reference point. But in those times, all they had was the Jewish scriptures. And even the Jewish Christians were new to this faith. They had to learn about God's grace and leaving the Mosaic law behind. So it wasn't easy for them. And really, this young church in Corinth had become a mishmash of opinions on what it meant to be a Christian. Based on Jewish tradition, Greek philosophy and intellectualism, pagan cults a very sexually liberal culture, as well as an economy driven by slavery and profiteering. So this was, the, this was the whole bang that had now kind of gone into the life of the church. So what did it mean to be a Christian? So it is in AD 55, two years after he had originally left Corinth, that Paul writes again to them a second letter which is the letter we're studying, 1 Corinthians. It's actually the second letter, not the first, because we lost the first one. And in this letter, he begins to clarify things for them and to exhort them to help them in what they're facing. And there were many problems that Paul addresses throughout this letter. And in our current preaching series, we've looked at chapters 1 to 7 up to now, and the issues that he's been addressing in, in the letter so far is internal factions and division around preferences for different leaders. Uh, incest where a man was sleeping with his mother-in-law. Prostitution as just a normal lifestyle. That was so normal for them. They didn't realize when you became Christians you shouldn't sleep with prostitutes a growing practice amongst married couples to withhold from each other sexually as some kind of super spirituality. They're being very spiritual if they didn't have sex. Some Christians who wanted to get divorced as that was just the normal practice within Corinthian culture. And this question, was it okay to be single and not be married? So they are 10 more issues still to come in the remaining chapters, uh, from lawsuits to eating, uh, to how we handle our money, to the role of women in meetings, to the use of spiritual gifts, just to mention a few. Now, I want to say, if, if, you're, if you're leading a church, and just one of those issues was in your church, <laughs> that would be enough of a challenge. <laughs> so this church was dealing with all of these issues, and Paul was trying from a distance to encourage them so when paul writes this letter he writes with the boldness of an apostolic father who's really planted this church and and wanted to oversee its inception and he also writes with a pastoral heart really longing to see this newly formed church grounded in a faith in this new gospel of jesus so i know that's a long introduction but it's all really important for us to understand the little piece that I'm going to be preaching today. And we're going to be looking um, at 1 Corinthians 7 from verse 29 uh, to 31. Um, It's almost a bit of a a precy of his thoughts so far in the letter. But at the same time, Paul is laying a very important foundational truth that he wants this young church to build their lives on if they're going to be followers of Jesus. So let's just read that passage together. So Paul starts in verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those of us, or those who have wives, live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as if they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. A little bit of a conundrum, a little bit of a confusing passage, so I really hope that as I share with you this morning, it will begin to make sense. So let's just look at that Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. Now, if you were here last week, or you can catch up, Ed spoke very graciously about Paul's ex- exhortations in these the verses leading up to this, um, about what it meant to be married and to take care of one's family. And what it means to be single and have time and energy to serve God. So Ed really unpacked that very well. Now in these verses, Paul takes a moment to really drive his point home. This is what I mean, brothers. He's trying to like, I've told you all of this. Now I really want to narrow it down. What I'm really trying to get at, at, fellowship of Corinthian believers, that The appointed time has grown very short. And because verse 29 is the central point of his argument for how they should behave as Christian believers, it's important that we understand it clearly, as there have been many different interpretations and applications of these simple words over the years. Now, verse 29. It sort of echoes, if you remember back to what Ed preached, verse 26. Do you remember Ed spoke about verse 26? I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Or was that Clive? I think Clive preached that. In view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. And some translations say because of the impending crisis... And the Greek word that's used there is ananken. So Paul is saying there's something there's something that verse 26 he mentions and 29 he mentions again. The time is short. So some argue um, that Paul is referring to some kind of disaster or crisis, like a famine or persecution, and that therefore. It's best not to get married or make any changes to your life when things are not secure or safe. So that's one of the translations that there might have been a catastrophe that happened, or there was something they were undergoing some persecution. However, uh, this translational interpretation is quite difficult to justify because, firstly, given the dates uh, for the letter, there is no historical evidence of a famine. Or any disaster around 55 AD. Secondly, given the issues already discussed in Paul's letter, persecution doesn't seem to be one of the subjects of concern that is raised by the Corinthian church. So, it doesn't seem to be that there's a precedent for there being a disaster or famine or any kind of persecution. So, what is it talking about? Another interpretation of this Greek word, anankin, is that it's referring to the idea that Christ's impending return was not just a far-off possibility, but the notion that Paul, in fact, really believed that Christ could return at any time soon. And so, to get married would have been a distraction when everything else was about to wrap up soon anyway. So, don't get married Jesus is coming back next week, it's not really worth it. That was the idea that some interpreters thought that's what Paul was saying. After all, if you look at 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, uh, 17, it says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. So you could understand, easily think that that was meant to be, that Paul expected to be among the we who would be caught up with the Lord Jesus when he returns. Um, but theologian Don Carson, he argues that's a very unlikely understanding of and Ken. as Paul really contradicts this idea in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 14, when he says that he expects to die. And to be raised up with Christ on the last day. It says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise up by his power. by his power. So how are we to understand this word anenken? Or as it's been translated, this present crisis in verse 26. Now, I know it's sounding very technical, but we're going, so are you following me? I hope it's not too. So, Carson says that a better understanding of this word, ananken, which we've got translated as present crisis, is constraint rather than crisis. Because of the present constraint, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. What does what do we mean by constraint? I was thinking of some words. I think it's like a, a reigning in, or the constriction of a present season. And we see this is similar to the meaning in verse twenty nine. The appointed time is short. It's constrained. It's constricted. It's contracted. Or if you play an accordion, it's a call, sort of concertinated. Everything's been squashed together. In other words, the present time that we live in is the age between the first coming of Christ and the second coming, which has been contracted. It's been brought forward. And we live within the constraints of these two cosmological events, the first and the second coming of Christ. So, when we read those verses again, in other words, the time, verse 9, 29, and 26, are saying, the time is short. Jesus is coming soon. And as John says in Revelation, he who testifies to these things, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So, what is Paul driving home to his converts? He's saying, In view of the fact that we are living in the tension of a world that is lost and subject to judgment on the one hand, and on the other hand, we live in the age of the powerful gospel that's at work in people's lives as we await Christ's return till he puts everything under his feet, including death, given that this is the constraint within which we live, then this is how you are to live your lives. Do you understand? Don Carson puts it like this. He says, "The last act of the old order is winding down, and the new order has already begun, though it has not yet broken out in consummation, consummation splendor." So we live in tension. On the one hand, and on the other hand, we live concertinaed in this concentrated place between Christ's first coming and His second coming, and it's a place of tension. And in the light of that, Paul says, it's best that you don't get married. <laughs> but don't worry. He, he means you can get married. But anyway, <laughs> let's, let's just unpack that. I mean, I think those, those verses have been done already. But... Uh, let's just unpack what he says. In the light of that, this then is how we should live. So we read from verse 29 to 31, and he tells all these things. If you have a wife, live like you don't have a wife. If you're sad, live like you're happy. If you're happy, live like you're sad. Uh, If you buy some things, live as though you didn't. And if you deal with the world, pretend you don't very confusing (laughs) in the light of this present constraint. Because we live in the tension of a broken, fallen world and the life-changing power of the gospel, because we live in the tension of the now and the not yet of God's kingdom, because we live in the present but always anticipating the return of Christ and the day of the Lord, from now on, live like this. And Paul begins to share some wisdom. They're not commands, it's wisdom with the Corinthian church about how to manage these tensions we have as believers in our everyday lives. These are not meant to be an exhaustive list, but if you look at them, they're examples that point to different areas of our lives our relationships, our mental and emotional well being due to our circumstances our possessions, our ambitions and goals and practices. So let's look at the first one. Those who have wives should live as though they had none. I hope there's no one rejoicing here today. But you will not get away with it. No, just easy. Um, This cannot mean uh, that husbands should abandon their wives or vice versa. Women abandon their husbands or neglect their relationships and families to pursue something more seemingly spiritual. Because Paul has just spent many verses saying how husbands and wives need to be generous and kind and bless one another in their marriages. But Paul is teaching a radically different view about our relationships, and especially the most significant human relationship we could ever have on earth, our marriages. What Paul is saying is that because we live in this new age that has dawned as we await Christ's return, we cannot live as if marriage is the ultimate goal of life. Marriage is not the ultimate goal of life. It cannot be the ultimate fulfillment of our lives and our purpose. You see, marriage does not continue after we die, till death has to part. It's not part after the resurrection. It's not part of the new heaven and the new earth. And as important and as wonderful as marriage is... And for some, maybe as difficult as it is. Paul helps believers understand that as Christians, we do not invest it with eternal significance. It's a really radical thing he's saying here. Because so much of our culture would say, you've got to find your soulmate. You've got to find the perfect one. And that is the source of all your happiness and the bliss for the rest of your life. That's what the romantic rom-coms sell. But Paul is saying, even as wonderful and as blessed as a gift from God marriage is, it doesn't have eternal significance, and we need to hold it in that way. Um, I'm just aware of time, but there was, uh, I remember learning about an, a Pentecostal evangelist, John G. Lake, who uh, was born in Canada and he had powerful uh, healing crusades in South Africa in the early 1900s. But he was so engrossed with his ministry that he neglected his wives. He had two wives and they both died. He had five children and many grandchildren, great grandchildren, and none of them wanted anything to do with gospel because of the way that he neglected them as a family. And uh, it's really sad that he was probably one of the greatest uh, revivalists and had the most powerful healing ministry but he was disconnected from God's heart for the most important people he was called to love and invest in, and that was his family. And on the other hand, Um, through years of leading in, in, in church, it's also sad to see when people sacrifice or limit the call of God on their lives because of maybe who they've chosen to marry or just not find the courage to exhort their husband or wife to move from a place of lukewarmness to a shared zeal for God and his kingdom priorities. Our marriages are a gift from God, and we're called to love one another to the exclusion of others. And we will give an account before God of how we've loved and cared for our families. But there's even a higher call to live in a way that makes God central and primary to our goals, our plans, and our resources as married couples together. So that's what Paul's saying. He doesn't say, walk away from your marriages. He's saying, remember, they are not of eternal significance. They are in the sense that we give account to God for how we live, but they are the gift that we steward here on earth. And then he says, those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And here Paul is not saying that there may be times in our lives of grief and sadness as well as times of happiness and that we shouldn't show our true feelings or that we should feel guilty for having any discouragement or regret or any pleasure or excitement in our lives. No, just, just like marriage, these emotions are valid, and they're an important part of our lives. Paul was really feeling compassion for the Corinthians. He sensed their struggles and rejoiced in their triumphs as any good father would. But what he was saying was, in the light of the eternal glory that awaits us, our pain and our sadness and our grief does not last forever. And I want to comfort you this morning with those words. Whatever you're going through, this is not your eternal life. This is not your eternal destiny. And likewise, happiness, we shouldn't just dismiss this and we're not all meant to walk around like looking glum and miserable. That's not what Paul is saying. But he's saying that happiness is not our highest goal. How contrary to our culture is that even today? I loved, uh, Nicolene sent me this little video of this old lady sitting in her kitchen with a cup of tea. And her daughter's interviewing her. I think this was in lockdown. And the daughter said, mother, what makes you happy? And she stirs her tea and she says, my dear sitting here with you, having tea, is what makes me happy. And then she said, this is a happy moment. And that just so ministered to me, because you know, happiness is in moments, isn't it? You can have a little happy moment, and then next month you can have some really bad news. <laughs> and we've got to savor the happy moments. And so I've taken to saying when I'm with friends or family or This is a happy moment. You know, let's enjoy those little moments, savor those times where we're having fun with our friends, where our children are making us laugh, or we have something great happen at work. Let's say this is a happy moment and enjoy them. But that is fleeting, and it doesn't stay. You know, our culture gives itself to the pursuit of pleasure and self-fulfillment. But there is a higher call for us, even then, happiness. It's not our highest goal. It's to follow and obey Christ so that we can become like Him and reflect God's glory to the world. And then I just do the last two very quickly those who buy as if they have no goods. You know, some, some people find their pleasure and their identity in the acquisition of things, but Paul writes, those who buy something, should treat it as if it was not theirs to keep. That's a very interesting way of putting it. It's not that there's no place for purchasing things. Um, we all purchase things on Amazon, or I'm not doing a promo, but we we purchase things on different in different ways. Uh, but just like marriage, it's not saying we shouldn't purchasing or buying things. But we need to say, how how can we attach an overweening importance to things that we cannot bring with us? And I want to leave us with a question maybe for us to think about in our own lives. Have we become so consumed with what we have and the significance and the security that it brings to us that we've really forgotten that this is not a true measure of our lives. Our acquisition of stuff is not a measure of who we are, and it's not a measure of our purpose and our destiny. And if that's become our all-consuming focus to have more, we've lost our way a bit. We need to say, God, help me clear the, the path a bit and see you clearly. And then he says, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. It's not that we do not properly interact with the things of the world, for this is where we live. And in John 17, we know Jesus said to his disciples, we are in the world, but not of the world. And what do we mean by the world? This includes all our human-orientated activities, politics, economics, entertainment, education, conflict, and so much more. Everything that we as humans engage in, apart from God, is Part of this world. This is our context, our field within which we live. And of course, we have daily dealings with different spheres and influences in our lives, and we're called to be a shining light wherever God has placed us. What Paul is saying is that these things, as important as they are, are temporary. They're here for us to steward for now and to be faithful, but they also are not eternal. And Paul put the matter succinctly when he ends in verse 31. For this world in its present form is passing away. We live in a tension. We give our all. We do our best in all of these things. We keep our focus, but then we remember the tension is that this is not forever. And I just want to end, I don't know if you know the, um, the teacher, Bible teacher, Francis Chan. I don't think of Relation Engine. But he gives this um, amazing illustration um, where he has a, a rope, which Derek kindly did for me. And I'm just going to throw the rope there. Um, so imagine this rope. And pretend it goes on forever and ever for eternity, this rope. Imagine this rope is a picture of your life. This little green bit is your life on earth. This is your life for eternity. How consumed are we with this We are very consumed that this this part is very important. I've worked very hard. I better have a lot of rest. And this part we, we're very, very concerned about. And we think, oh, this is a very important. My job is very important, Anna. And it is. But we, Paul is saying we need to keep perspective. It's only this much of all of this. And how we live here, the decisions that we make, our priorities and our focus. When Paul and Jesus speak about, invest in your heavenly rewards. Because what we do here affects how we live here. The Bible teaches that we will, we will have a wonderful, it will be wonderful in heaven. But there is a sense of reward that God says, as you sow to my kingdom, you will reap for my kingdom. That's what he's saying to these dear Corinthians. He's saying the time is short. This time is short. In Psalms it says, Lord, teach us to number our days aright that we may fear you. We want to live for the, as those who actually say, God, I want my life to count. I want to live in a way that builds your kingdom, that, is a, that honors you and brings you glory. Because I know I've got eternity to live in all those things that you've purposed for me. So I want us to pray together just to end. And uh, I hope that it's an encouragement to you because I hope you don't feel like, oh, no. My life, I'm feeling, don't, don't be anxious. That's not what Paul is trying to say to the church. He was trying to comfort them. But he's trying to say we need to get our perspective right. We need to think, brothers and sisters, the point of this is that the time is short. Let us live with eternity in mind.